Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. So shiny, so chrome. Today we are discussing Mad Max Fury Road. This is your co-host Corbin. Oh, what a day. What a lovely day. I'm Alan. This is the long-awaited sequel to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and boy, did it take a long time for the world to see a fourth Mad Max film. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, when we get into the background info, I'll have like an entire timeline of things that happened up to, up to when this was finally released, because it was crazy. It got caught in a long time in development hell, and we'll go over that here in a second. But yes, long-awaited, absolutely. Listeners, if you haven't heard our previous Mad Max movie reviews, don't miss out on those. This is the fourth and well for now, the final installment in our retrospective series. So go ahead and listen to our previous movie reviews. Though Those links are in the description below. They're very easy to find. And while you are checking out the description below, there's all kinds of fun things to explore down there such as our Facebook page, our Twitter page. Um, we have brand new links to our iTunes page, which is very easy to get to. And when you are over there, especially for those iTunes listeners, please go ahead and give us a five-star rating. That does help us, and we have seen people giving that to us. So we uh, want to say thank you. Really appreciate that. And also, if you can't get enough of us, you want to hear more, then go ahead and head on over to our Patreon page, and you will get bonus reviews, movie commentaries, our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, Q&As, all of that and more, just for the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee. All of that is at your fingertips, and that is yours to keep. The coffee is gone, the movie reviews and commentaries, everything is there to stay. So let's jump into talking about Fury Road because it is, uh, it's a bit furious, the road getting to it. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, this all began not long actually after, uh, the last Mad Max movie came out, Beyond Thunderdome. Uh, apparently George Miller lost the rights to Mad Max what? after, or to Warner Bros. And then in, in 1995, <laughs> he got them back. So his franchise. <laughs> I, I know it's some studio thing who, who knows all the logistics that go into that. Great. But so yeah, he got the rights back from Warner Bros. in 1998 mm-hmm. and then in nine, or sorry, 1995. And then in 98, this is when he created the idea for Fury Road, which is not necessarily to have all the fight focused on oil, but instead focused on humans. And he kind of developed that throughout the years. And it was originally set to start shooting in 2001, and then it didn't because uh, the 9-11 attacks happened, and that was also part of the issue. And then the other half of the issue was the American dollar went, the value of the American dollar went way down, and cut, which caused the Australian dollar to go way up. So that costs, would cost them a lot more money to try and make a movie around this time. And then in 2003, George Miller had a script that was written, and it was greenlit, and they had a budget of $100 million. Ooh. And then rain happened in the location they were going to go to, and they, so they, that was part of the reason why they couldn't go. <laughs> and then because of the Iraq War, uh, the shipping restrictions uh, had caught... There were shipping restrictions on things... That, I don't know if it was like price or whatever, but basically they had to halt the project because it would have cost them too much money or the restrictions were too heavy that they couldn't get footage they couldn't get all their gear to the location they were at so for, in 2003 they stopped the production because of the logistics 
apparently around this time in 2003 sometime is when they started production on like the cars that they were used in the movie, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about here in a second. So three years went by and pretty much nothing came out of, uh, nothing was reported until 2006 in November when Miller confirmed that he still wanted to make another Mad Max movie. But they had, at this point, they kind of had axed Gibson from the project, partly due to his age and also partly due to the, some of the controversies that was happening around this time. Heath Ledger apparently was considered, but it fell through because he died after The Dark Knight happened. So March 2009, they were thinking about doing maybe an R-rated 3D animation. Uh, it didn't even entered pre-production. And it was taking, the idea was to take a lot of plot points from Fury Road. And Miller kind of was figuring this would be like a renaissance for the for the franchise. And then later that year, a couple months later, Miller decided not to do animation and said to do a 3D live action movie and began scouting locations. And the production was then returned back to Warner Bros. Not I don't know if it was just like the whole franchise in total or if it was just distribution rights or production rights. So later again that year in October, they began principal production in Broken Hill, South New Wales. Uh, and it was scheduled to start in 2011. Uh, next year, June 2010, Tom Hardy was scheduled to play Max. Charlie's Theron was also to play a large role in June of that same year. Uh, he kind of uh, hinted at maybe we'll do two Mad Max movies at the same time, kind of filming back to back. One called Mad Max Free Road. The other one called Mad Max Furiosa. That obviously didn't happen. We just got Fury Road. And originally was set for a 2012 release. But in November 2011, uh, the filming moved from where it was originally stationed in Broken Arrow to uh, Nambi- was it? Namiba- Nam- Namibia. It was, so it moved to there because rain kind of fell on Broken Arrow and it caused wildflowers to bloom. And so they were like, okay, well, that kind of ruins the whole effect of the movie. So they moved it. There were other places that were also considered, but it looks like they kind of ended up in uh, the Nambian the desert. Finally, filming began in June 2012 and ended in December 2012. Uh, there was 120 days of filming in total, uh, which is interesting because the movie didn't come out until, what, 2015, right? Right. 2016? So, filming ended in 2012. In 2013, a script, a script was leaked and it kind of caused some controversy uh, in terms of where they were, what they were doing in the desert. A lot of People considered the, what they did in the desert, like, you know, all the practical effects that they have in this movie to be, in uh, in kind of in summary, a danger to the wildlife there. So they lost an investigation, and then they kind of, the I think it was the government determined that, hey, it really isn't all that bad. They were fine. So that happened. Uh, September 2013, they went did some more reshoots uh, up until November of 2013. July 2014, Miller said that he designed the film storyboard first and then screenplay afterwards. And this, he got ended up crafting around 3,500 panels, uh, which is pretty close to the number of shots that had the movie, which I believe is 2,700. So that's interesting because I don't really know what the relationship is between storyboard and uh, what you see on the on screen in terms of what how many panels versus how many cuts they have, but. 2,700 cuts is still a pretty large number of cuts for a movie of this scale. So, moving on, uh, he wanted it to be kind of like a continuous chase scene with very little dialogue and have wanting to be mostly visuals. He kind of talked about... He mentioned Alfred Hitchcock saying that he wanted a foreign audience to be able to understand the movie without having to use subtitles. Uh, 
So that's kind of the timeline that we have in the production of Fury Road. It's about, oh, what is it? 10? Yeah, almost 20 years of production just in this one movie, Fury Road, to just from, from, from Miller getting the rights back from Warner Bros. to it finally releasing in theaters. So it's pretty amazing this movie even got made considering all of the yeah. obstacles that they had to overcome. And it seems like every with every turn, they were being thwarted. Now, that, that tells me a lot because I just thought that after three films, Miller wanted to do something different. He was kind of capped off the trilogy. And, well, clearly he did many different things. He would go on to be at the Oscars a few times, go on to win some Oscars for uh, children's films. And then I thought he just was like, hey, I kind of want to return to this franchise and uh, I think I can like do something new with it. But that we've already seen now that I'm like a much more experienced filmmaker. But I guess that's really not the case. I guess it's just been kind of a constant project and battle like every other year of him like trying to do it and then getting shut down, trying to do it, getting shut down. And then finally it got made and boy, did it pay off because – when it did make it to the 2015 Oscars, it was, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it had the most nominations for that year with 10 nominations, including Best Picture, like Best uh, Director, and it won six Oscars, which is really crazy to think about, especially considering where he started with the original Mad Max. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, it's it's crazy because he, yeah, he won six Oscars out of the 10 that he was nominated for. And even the ones that he was nominated for, like these are the, the you know the big categories that he was able to get nominations for, which is a pretty big deal, especially for a franchise that's been pretty much dead for a while, oh, at yeah. least for a few a number of years. But yeah, it is interesting because normally you would just assume kind of like Blade Runner where they stopped, well, in that case, we only did one, but the sequel didn't come out for a number of years. And then when it does come out, it ends up being... Critically, a very highly praised work. In this one, it's very interesting to note that uh, it was mostly financial trouble. A ton of financial issues that came and went for, like we just mentioned, 20 years of it trying trying to get released. And usually when you hear a movie that has, an issues, has issues with production, it almost, not always, but more times than not, it ends up being a, ends up being a pretty poorly made movie just due to the logistics of getting everything back together and getting it to release. There's, this has happened a number of times with a lot of different movies where the production is not great, which also causes kind of causes the movie to also not be great. This is probably one of the few examples that I can, that I can, I can think of where the production is not great, but the movie is still ends up being very highly regarded. I think the, probably one of the most interesting pieces of information of this film's history is we very, we nearly got a computer animated R rated Mad Max film, which for those of you listeners who are trying to visualize that, it would be, you know, something like, like computer animation that's so popular today. Pixar, Illumination, Disney even, they make these animated films, but this would have been rated R. I don't, I don't see that doing well at all, um, commercially. That I think would have been, uh, pretty much a bomb, probably. 
Um, just trying to sell such a movie to adults only, it wouldn't have worked out very well, and it probably would have required a pretty high budget to make a computer animated film. So that's right. probably why they're really apprehensive, and that didn't go anywhere. Right, and to be fair, Happy Feet came around, came along, right, in kind of in the middle of all of this, yeah, uh, it, all these issues with Mad Max Fury Road. So it's not like Miller was like brand new to a computer animation. He'd done it before with Happy Feet, and then eventually Happy Feet Two, if I'm not mistaken, that he, I'm pretty sure he directed that. But so yeah, he was no newbie to computer animation. But yeah, it would have been really strange to go from computer go from live action to computer animation kind of like what would happen with Stuart Little is the first two were <laughs> yep. live action and then the last third I guess the third one uh-huh. was computer animated for whatever reason mm-hmm. but what is also interesting too is that there were two cuts of this movie there's a PG-13 cut and a an R-rated cut they were made just kind of for test screening really? beforehand oh. uh, and come to find out the R-rated cut uh, had the most well-received uh, thoughts rather than the PG-13 cut, which is what they ended up going with. Uh, they mostly did that for, I think, just for Warner Bros., just to see what what one would be better, which is interesting because usually the PG-13 cuts are the ones that would make the most money. Uh, but instead, they went, to go f- they went for the R-rated version. And this is such a, I would say, a soft R. It is heavy on action. Yeah. But as far as what an R rating would warrant concerning blood or extreme violence i I don't think we have very much of that we've got a little bit so it's not um not anywhere near the road warrior 2 which features like nudity and some innuendo rape scenes and the first one has nudity as well thunderdome was pg-13 so yeah this jump back to r and I, do, I don't even know if a PG-13 cut would make much of a difference for me. I don't know. It's hard to say because it really is hard to say because like you were saying just a second ago, it's kind of like a soft R. It would be interesting to see what, what they pulled out for it to garner a PG-13 rating. I don't think we'll ever be able to see that. It's not like a Blade Runner situation where they released every cut that was really, that was, that was <laughs> that exists for it pretty much. No. It would be interesting to see though regardless uh, what the PG-13 cut consists of in terms of Mad Max. However, what we do have, I think, at least considering what PG-13 cuts usually end up being like, I think this kind of feels like it's the best version of Mad Max Fury Road. Speaking of alternate cuts, it's not necessarily a different cut of the film. It's just a different version of it. And Alan and I did watch it for the first time. It was commercially released on Blu-ray, It was dubbed Mad Max Fury Road Black and Chrome Edition, where they took the film, which is notable for its hyper-colorization, its intense saturation of colors, and it's turned black and white. And according to George Miller, there's an article on Screen Rant where he said that the black and white version is the definitive version of the movie. That's his preferred version of how the movie should be and he originally wanted it also to be a silent film with just the incredible uh junkie xl score to accompany it maybe subtitles i doubt there'd be like inserted title cards um right but there was no silent cut that was supposed to come to the blu-ray the silent cut never came who knows maybe we'll get it someday but i will say that 
watching the black and chrome edition did feel um like the dialogue wasn't as emphasized and the music was much more emphasized because in my home theater i really had to turn up the volume to just hear the dialogue but the music was always plenty loud so uh what did you think of the black and white version alan overall it's it's an interesting version of mad max fury road uh i'd say it's definitely worth worth a watch but only if you've seen the colorized version first. I don't think, although it would be interesting to see somebody uh, look at the Black and Chrome edition as their first ring, I think that if you're going to watch Mad Max Free Road and you haven't watched it before, go for the colorized version first. And if you want to check out what the Black and Chrome edition is about, check out that one afterwards. Because I think you gain more from the colorized version than from the black and white version. But I don't, but that's not to say that the black and white version should not exist. I think that it is very interesting just for what it's going for in general. Yeah, I would pretty much agree with everything you said. The black and white version is definitely a worthy version that um, people who liked Fury Road should go ahead and check out because it's a pretty unique way to watch. And clearly you can tell they gave some care to making it a black and white film. You can't just apply the Instagram black and white filter and voila, you've got a black and white film. Uh, it, yeah, you have to like purposefully light the movie to accentuate blacks and shadows and whites. So whenever something is in black and white, it's, it's meticulously done. So it's purposely shot that way. And you, I could tell they did a great job making this into like a, for back of a little term, a vibrant black and white film. Yeah. And speaking of things that this movie is highly regarded for, one of the other things aside from color is its practical effects. Uh, been highly, uh, what is it? Re- highly uh, well received in terms of using very practical effects instead of CGI that we are, at this point, I would say we're pretty used to seeing in movies, especially action films. They tend to, they, although it sounds like we're kind of going back to using more practical effects than we were CGI. For for a while, we used a lot of CGI. And Miller came out and said that about 90% of this movie is all practical effects. Every vi- Of all the visual effects that are in here, there is about 90% of it is practical. Now, they do use CGI here and there, and there are times where you can tell that they've used CGI. But for the most part, everything that you're seeing is pretty much a real crash or a realistic uh, if everything that you're seeing here, for the most part, nine times out of ten, is going to be it's going to be something that actually happened, a crash that they actually planned out and executed, rather than having it, rather than having CGI a CGI mess. Now that's not to say that they didn't use CGI to help touch things up. I'm sure that they did, but pretty much everything that you're going to be seeing is pretty much practical. There are over two thousand special effects shots, and as mentioned earlier, there are around twenty seven hundred cuts in this movie. So. Most of this movie utilized uh, special effects in some fashion. And the funny thing is, when I first saw this movie, especially the big crash at the end, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but it's kind of when everything comes crashing down. I thought that was CGI. And honestly, I thought on my first viewing that it looked bad. I'm like, oh, that's CGI. I can tell that's bad. But then I realized that was a real crash. They really did flip the big truck and i'm like oh what so upon my next viewing i can tell that it is real but i think the way that it's filmed because they kind of slow it down i thought that it kind of had a fabricated look to it so kind of funny considering it's real though right 
Now, upon all of these special effects, they employed over 150 stunt performers. Oh, yeah. Some were Olympic athletes, Ooh. and then others were a part. I think they're Canadian, oh. but they're like uh, they're kind of like performers. <laughs> they go around the world and they perform, kind of like a circus like mm-hmm. thing. They're known as uh, I'm going to butcher this, but it's Circuit de Circuit du Soleil. Cirque de Soleil. Uh, they're like an acro- if I understand right, they're like a yeah, they're like an acrobatics group. Yeah, I've heard of them. They're they're not pretty famous. Yeah, I've he- I've definitely yeah. heard of them. So they they helped. Yes, they helped. I'm guessing they had something to do with the polecats in this movie, along with plenty of other things. I'm sure, oh, but yeah. I'm, my guess is they the polecats were mostly performed by them. I could be very wrong about that. But Probably. that being said, they have very experienced, I guess, performers on this movie. Also, uh, Miller decided to pull his wife in on the oh, editing process. Right. I believe that's one of the more well-known facts of this movie. Uh, she, he felt as if she could help make it stand out from other action movies. Yeah, and did. it took him about three months to get through the footage because there was over 480 Ooh, hours that they gosh. captured. I don't know how much that was that's usable. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of footage. So they took him three months to get through it. And as I mentioned earlier, there was about 2,700 cuts, which is about 22 and a half cuts a minute in this movie, which for comparison's sake, uh, Road Warrior has about 1,200 cuts and about 13.33 cuts a minute because that's only about 90 minutes long. This is Fury Road is about half an hour longer than this one is. So that's interesting. Another fun fact here is about, as I believe uh, the editor stated this herself, 50 to 60% of the movie doesn't actually run at the standard 24 frames a second. And they utilize quite a bit of manipulation. So, for example, Miller would speed it up if the shot felt it was, if, the, if he felt the shot was too well understood, or would slow it down if he felt it went by too quick. So, usually you don't see move. Okay, well, I guess I didn't say usually, but usually when you see footage sped up, it's not always done for a stylistic purpose. This one is done to keep the energy pretty much at a consistent rate uh, when it needs to be there. Usually it looks, I would say, pretty cheap when you, you when you speed up footage a lot. It's mostly when it's noticeable. But it is also very interesting to note that they did, uh, they did for over half the movie, they did keep it at not a standard 25, 24 frames a second. Or if they did, I mean, it might be outputted at 24 frames a second, but they still sped up or slowed down footage accordingly, depending on what Miller felt. Yeah, and you can tell certain scenes, especially in the beginning when he's trying to flee right. from them, it's a lot quicker. And that in itself makes it feel like a silent film because silent films were often sped up in certain scenes. And he even sped up the movie in... Uh, the first movie, there are certain scenes where you can tell yeah. they're driving alongside each other and it's a lot quicker than it than looks normal. So that's one of the things that I do think is really amazing is Miller takes all of his knowledge about filmmaking and stylistic choices and he just kind of bundles them all together into this complete package where he seems like he's been able to perfect all of these yeah. ideas that have slowly been accumulating and it's really cool to see a movie in the 2010s um, utilize all the stuff that we've been reviewing and seeing 
from like the late 70s and early to mid 80s. Right. It's also interesting too that I that I guess he would even decide to manipulate the frame rate cuz the last time I guess there was any kind of frame rate change that I can remember at least seeing in the theater would be with the Hobbit movies. I believe I saw the first one with the high frame rate. I don't think oh, I saw wow. anything else with the high frame rate. That was weird. <laughs> that was I'm really sure. weird to see a movie at 48 frames a second in a theater. Uh but I mean that being said it is still interesting that he would decide to mess with that. There were times I was watching for it more the last time I was watching than I had ever before. Because now that I knew that he had sped up footage, I was watching to see what shots were sped up and what weren't. And if you are really watching for it, you won't notice too many. You'll notice a few. There are, few, there are a few that were, it's pretty clear that they sped up the footage. But there were a number that I noticed that I hadn't noticed before that were totally sped up. Maybe by a little bit. But. They're definitely <laughs> sped up uh, from a few shots that I had noticed before. So, yeah, if you're watching for it, it's probably a bit more noticeable. That just kind of goes without saying. But, yeah, if you aren't watching for it, you may not notice too many shots that are in that do end up being sped up. So, composer time. Junkie XL. Have you heard of this composer before, Corbin? Um, I have heard of him for one other movie that I can't recall. Maybe, what what else has he done? Because in, did he do Batman v Superman? Yes, he did Batman v Superman with Hans Zimmer, I believe. It was this okay. partner. Yes, that's, I think that's all that I know him from. Okay. Let me pull up his name real quick and we'll talk about him. Um, so Junkie XL, yes, he did do Batman v Superman. But he's also done quite a few other things lately, namely his most, I guess, most w- recent work is with Alita Battle Angel. Okay. Uh, well, he, then I've seen did, that. <laughs> yeah. He has worked in that. He's worked with, um, he's worked on, uh, what's it called? Amazing Spider-Man 2. Mm. And just like more, just a couple other things. But his, so where George Miller got the idea from was hearing his soundtrack to uh, 300 Rise of an Empire. He heard that, and pretty much uh, once he heard that, he said, I want this man, because he kind of visualized how that soundtrack would work in a Mad Max movie, which before we really haven't had anything too crazy in terms of a score for these movies. Uh, This is definitely the most out there score when you're relating the rest of the Mad Max films. So yeah, once he heard the soundtrack for Rise of an Empire, uh, he like said, I want this man on my project. Oh, wow. That's uh, pretty interesting because I have yeah. seen that movie and it does kind of have one of those epic scores and it's a pretty epic movie. I think the score for this film is, of all the other scores I've seen, Alita, Mortal Engines, Tomb Raider, The Dark Tower, I've pretty much seen almost everything he's done. Deadpool, I haven't seen Point Break or Black Mass. Right. Um Divergent, Spider-Man 2. Yeah, I've seen pretty much all of them, but I think this is his best one that I've heard. Yeah, this is definitely the one that at least in my mind stands out the most. Um, from what I remember, it might actually even be the one that I like the most, but I can't really remember these other scores. Uh, ex- aside from right. Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is a strange score with all the the he hates a me kind of music going on in the background. Mm, but yeah, I don't remember. This, yeah, this might be the one that I at least noticed the most out of the other movies that I've seen that he's done, like Battle Angel 
or Batman v Superman. So it didn't did not get an Oscar for score. It didn't get nominated. Okay, I was wondering if that was the case, but I I can kind of see why. Uh, it's more it's more dubstep e than what the Academy probably would ever go for. Yeah, and you'd think like with somebody with the name Junkie XL, you think they'd be like a twenty five year old millennial, but he was born in nineteen sixty seven. He's not young. But I mean, oh really? Wow, <laughs> he's a lot older than I thought he was. Yeah. He uh, he's a pretty pretty good guy, but I did actually see a trailer for this film in the theater. I wanted to bring that up too. I remember seeing the trailer before the film American Sniper, and I thought this movie looks super weird. What the heck? Mm-hmm. Don't want to see that. Probably probably going to be awful anyway. And uh, that that movie's for uh, weirdos that like uh, weird scary things, <laughs> um, like these weird things driving around, like jumping out at each other. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember when when I watched this trailer. I know that I saw it because when I watched it, I was like, I really want to see that. I forget where I saw it. And I also heard that it was apparently really good. And then I went to, I actually did. Did you ever get to see this in the theater? Because I remember I did. But I, I can't remember if you ever got to see it in the theater. Aside from, no, you, of course, I, your theater room. No, right. No, I never saw it when it was in the theaters. I saw it when it came out. On HBO, I watched it in the theater room with my dad. That was the first time we saw it. And I was I was intrigued to, to think what my dad would think of it because it is kind of far out there and weird with a lot of the things it has. Right. And I know he doesn't really take to some of that stuff as much as I would just accept it. But he ended up really liking it. And he we've returned to it together since then. Okay. Well, I did get. To, I got to see this in the theater, um, and that was quite the experience. It was a lot more. There was a lot, a lot more people in it than I, I guess I expected, and I remember really, really enjoying it. And it took me a lot longer to actually pick up the Blu-ray than uh, than I guess what I would do now. But yeah, I I can't remember how many times I've seen this now that I think about it because I remember I did own it on DVD before I owned it on Blu-ray. That part is the reason why. So I've seen it. I know at least. I wouldn't say double digits yet, but pretty close to double digits. Did you see it in 3D? Because I know it was released in 3D. Right. No, I saw it in the typical 2D. Okay. I haven't heard this film as like a mandatory 3D experience. Yeah, yeah. I don't... Is there a 3D Blu-ray that exists for this? I'm assuming Mm -hmm. yes. Yes. There is a 3D Blu-ray, a 4K Blu-ray, a regular Blu-ray, and then the black and chrome Blu-ray. So there's four different Blu-ray editions out there. It's a little crazy. Yeah. Hmm. I would want to see the 4K version of this. That seems like it'd be really cool to see. It would be. Yeah. Uh, I was I was pretty surprised to see at the time audiences gave this a B plus. They and yeah. I, I mean I can kind of understand that because this movie is if you don't like super intense long action movies that are pretty kind of wild and weird and out there, then you might not take to this movie as much. But in a way, it does kind of give you that – it gives you kind of that 80s action feel. It also gives you that 80s world-building feel where there's right. all these like weird worlds in the 80s. Um, but it's still as much a, a higher caliber. But nevertheless, B+. Plus, but – IMDb audiences in hindsight, I think, have kind of like rectified that. And I believe it has it has an 8.1 on IMDb. 
Yeah, it's got a really high score on IMDb, and Simba score is, I mean, it's, I mean, we talked about this before, Beetle Plus is still good, but, you know, not fantastic compared to what audiences would think. And the budget, and or not the budget, but the uh, the numbers also kind of reflect this. Uh, it only made 154 million domestically, which with a 200 million dollar with a 200 million dollar budget, didn't exactly make back the money domestically that it wanted to. Now it did make its money back worldwide because it got 224 million 800 thousand from the foreign box office, so almost 379 million dollars worldwide. So it still made its money back, but it came it, and it came close to doubling it, but didn't exactly. Reach that hump of doing the of getting the double, uh, getting double the it's but getting double its put, uh, production value in terms of money, uh, when in the in the box office. I was a little surprised to see that here in the states, the film with a hundred and fifty million dollar budget only made three million dollars past its budget just domestically and it didn't it it was beat out pretty badly by pitch perfect 2 on opening weekend oof oh yes i forgot those came out around the same time yeah i was surprised to see that pitch perfect was number one at the box office and it did uh beat out avengers age of ultron for it, it was uh, higher up on the totem pole. Uh, old, uh, that movie had been out for a little while, but nevertheless, it was, right. it was still grossed more. I was, I mean, in some ways, I'm not surprised because this is an old franchise bring brought back, and who knows, people. Like I said, when I saw the trailer, I thought it looked too bizarre to right. really warrant me to go buy a ticket. Nothing about the trailer really drew me in. It was only till its home theater life did I really discover the joy of this film. Right. And I can also see that, I mean, at this time, Mad Max, now that it's been about roughly 30 years since it, uh, since the last one came out, it's kind of moved into cult status at this point, the Mad Max franchise. So I can definitely see why these numbers are not fantastic. They're good numbers, but not great numbers not the numbers that you would want to strive for in the movie business so i can see why that the cult status part of it uh kind of also impeding on some of the money that it probably could have made if it came out maybe either earlier or maybe even had maybe marketed itself towards the cult audience and there i'm sure there are a number of reasons that a number of things that could have done uh to maybe get more money out of it but still it is should not be understated that $378 million uh, in the box office worldwide is not is, is bad, because it isn't. It's good, still good money, just not, you know, the ideal amount of money that you would want to return with. The other thing I've also kind of noticed is if you're making a sequel to a 40-year-old franchise, and unless your movie starts with the title Star Wars, then <laughs> you are not going to draw back as much of an enthusiastic crowd. Usually f- sequels have their momentum in the same decade that they're released as to, to their predecessor. So like with Blade Runner 2049, although we love it and so many others do, it didn't do phenomenal at the box office. Tron Legacy sequel to that, that was about 30 years later didn't do as well in the box office. It still did 400 million worldwide, but not good enough for Disney. So it does seem, and just here with Fury Road as well, if you're coming back 
just know that you're going to probably bring back the fans, but people are going to be probably confused or not as enthused as they probably would have been with your uh, predecessor films. Right. And this is also a bit different than, you know, a remake, because at least with a remake, you don't have to have much of, I guess, prior knowledge of previous movies. Now, with Mad Max Free Road, I went in, I had not seen Mad Max movie before this, so it it does a pretty good job at kind of, at this, it's it's kind of like a, uh, a it's kind of like both a sequel and a uh, remake, more or less, or a reboot of the series. Um, because you can go in without seeing any of the other, any of the other Mad Max movies and not really miss too much with this one. Um, if you have seen the other ones, it only kind of helps with your knowledge of what happens in this movie. So it's, I mean, it's at the same time, it's 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 neither here nor there. If you have seen the other Mad Max movies, to so come in with this one with with uh, blank with the blank slate, I'm sure that both of us, I, I know that both of us have seen this one first before seeing the other three Mad Max movies. Uh, uh, I'm. I've, we mentioned this in the first podcast of the Mad Max retrospective. I'm the only one here that's actually seen the first Mad Max all the way through, and two and three neither of us have seen. Well, Alan, do you want to give the listeners the plot? And I, I'm guessing it won't be a very long or complicated plot. And instead of just like going through the story beat by beat, we can talk about story elements, but it would probably be good because there's some pretty good themes we could discuss in this movie as well. So you want to go ahead and give that to him. Oh, also listeners, spoiler alert right now. If you haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road and you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause, go watch the movie, come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about spoilers. Max Rekatansky roams a desert. I'm I'm assuming after the events of uh of Thunderdome, although it's not exactly stated where this is fitting in the timeline, but given the state of the last three movies, it would be I guess logical it'd be logical to assume that it happens after Thunderdome. Anyways, uh he's running the desert, running from both the living and the dead. After being pursued by a party of war boys, Max is taken prisoner at the in the Citadel as a universal donor, having a tube run from Max to another war boy named Nux. Immortan Joe, the leader of the Citadel, gets gets Imperator Furiosa to run supplies to neighboring communities, Gastown and Bullet Farm, in exchange for gas and ammunition. However, Furiosa deviates from the path, and Joe becomes paranoid, discovering his breeders are missing. He calls upon his war boys and sets out on pursuit of Furiosa to reclaim his wives and hopefully deliver the supplies to Gastown and Bullet Farm. Nux brings Max with him, strapping him to the front of his vehicle and leads and leads the pursuit on on the war rig. After driving into a sandstorm, Nux begins to f- Nux begins filling the cabin with gasoline, which is kind of like the replacement of gasoline in this world, and lights a flare to hopefully kamikaze himself into the war rig to stop it. Max interferes, however, causing Nux to crash. Max wakes up and drags Nux to the war rig, which also stopped due to sand buildup. Max comes across Furiosa and the we- and the breeders washing themselves off. Max eventually befriends the group and continues on their adventure with them. Furiosa drives into a cannon ruled by a biker gang. She struck a deal with them earlier on to give to give them 3,000 gallons of gasoline for a safe passage for them to block the incoming war party. Unfortunately, both Gastown and Bullet Farms being in on this pursuit, the biker gang uh, 
begins to fire at, at Furiosa for, I guess, not necessarily being truthful for what she had told them before, which which is which would be there were only a few there would only be a few vehicles in pursuit of me, not three war parties. So the Riker gang attack Furiosa and crew. The gang escapes, but not after a Morton Joe makes it over the rock and witnesses Splendid's death as she falls out of the war rig after running into a rock. That later that night, however, uh, mud beget mud becomes an issue in the marshland. The war rig and the war parties are having trouble to fight against it. The leader of the bullet farm heads out on heads out solo to take out Furiosa, but are but he is but him and his party are thwarted by both Furiosa and later Max, finally granting them some distance from the war parties and the war rig. They eventually reach the uh, Vuvellini clan, where Furiosa was originally from. Only they find that the green place, which is what Furiosa has gone to find, is gone. It, long ago, it was poisoned after, I, I guess, after a long time of, uh, I'm assuming radiation. They kind of, kind of go into this in detail. But essentially, it, they used to own what they, explore, what they explain as like a giant garden. And then the water was poisoned and they had to, they had to leave. They decide to get on bikes and continue heading east, uh, but Max hatches a plan, drives straight through the war parties and close them off in the same canyon as before, sub- subjugating the green place for the citadel uh, Now that is now unguarded. The gang does just that, and Furiosa almost dies, killing Immortan Joe in the process. Nux sacrifices himself and the war raked at the canyon pass so the others can survive. Max saves Furiosa before she collapses her lungs by giving her blood like he had done before with Nux. Max. My name is Max, he tells her. The gang returns to the Citadel and shows the people that Immortan Joe is dead, granting freedom to the people. Furiosa and crew, along with those who are able to climb, above, climb aboard the rising platform, Max ends up disappearing into the crowd on the ground as credits roll. Now, one of the things that I was wondering is kind of... Is this a, is this a sequel? Is this a reboot? It, or is it both? Because... I've always just kind of felt this is a reboot of the series where it's not it's not negating the previous three films, but it's just saying this is an episode in the life of Max Rokotansky, whereas clearly the other three kind of ran into each other, although I would say more so t- from two to three, that's more of a looser connection. Um, especially because we have that one guy, um, the gyro captain, he, he's in both movies, but playing two different characters. Right. Um, so I thought that was confusing. So I guess you could say this does take place after Thunderdome. It's possible to even say this takes place before Thunderdome and between the road warrior, or you can say it, it, the Thunderdome and the Road Warrior and so on never even happened in that Max's world. And we just know he, he did have a look like a daughter that got run over, whereas in the first one he had a son. So that seemed to be that. To me, it just seems like they're taking story elements and everything, kind of like our background knowledge of the first three, and kind of wrapping it up into a new story. Yeah, it's like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of hard to say if it's a reboot or a sequel or both. I guess you can really see it as whatever because it's kind of open-ended. There really isn't a hard callback to the previous movies. And in fairness, every other Mad Max movie that's come, by, that's come out before this haven't exactly called back to the movies that happened previous. You can pretty much jump into the Mad Max uh, franchise almost wherever mm-hmm. and yeah. 
have watched that movie and it will be pretty much its own adventure. Rui, I guess, in my mind, the only, I guess, true sequel is from one to two. And that's a rather loose term of sequel because you do get to see Mad Max or Max from the first one kind of go insane. And then from the second one where he is insane, kind of coming back to uh, more on the good side. All once again, it's kind of loose. So it's 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 weird to say that this is a sequel because it kind of isn't because it isn't. But compared to everything else that we've seen with Mad Max before, there really are no exactly true sequels to this franchise. Uh, I suppose it's both both sequel and uh, sequel and reboot. It has been that long, so uh, it's 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 a hard definition. It's hard to define where this movie is in terms of either of these definitions and as far as like how closely it resembles the other movies i would say this one fury road is more so reminiscent of the road warrior for me um yeah just considering the look of it kind of the factions there's a lot more driving and stunts i would say that is probably the closest spiritual predecessor sequel to any of them because this doesn't really feel too much like Thunderdome, save for maybe more so a focus on innocence and kind of protecting innocence in a way. Right. Yeah, it's it, it does have a lot of callbacks to its previous movies, most notably The Road Warrior. And when I was watching that, I noticed a lot of different things that I remember being in Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, they are these callbacks. So yeah, they, they do reference previous movies in the Mad Max franchise, uh, but it, once again, kind of follows his own path. I'm curious to know what the flashbacks are a part of because I don't remember ever seeing anybody close to us being re- shown here in Max's, like, I guess, PTSD-like filled flashbacks that he has here. Um, I, I can't remember, aside from the little girl that may be a reference to the son that they have in the first one. That's really about it. The only connection I can make everybody else that we see in this flashback. And there's a few people that we do see most notably little girl, but I don't know where else they would be in this franchise timeline. Yeah. And those kind of opening visions and things that he sees really set the tone more so than any other film that Max is mad, AKA he is insane and he's yeah. crazy. He's not unstable. He's not stable. He's not really one to be trusted. But something else this film does is while it does set the focus on him initially, it seems to quickly shift from him because we're introduced right off the bat also to Furiosa, who I would say is just as much of a main character as Max is. And they go hand in hand in this movie so well. Like their character chemistry is like almost like none other I've seen in another movie. Oh yeah. They have relatively similar goals. Uh, Max, this kind of goes, kind of going back to the visions for a brief moment. Uh, The visions kind of help serve his, I guess, guilt of not being able to save the people that are in these visions. Once again, it's kind of up in the air if they're visions that pertain to the previous movies or just events that happen between movies from the last one, from Thunderdome to this one. It's hard to say. But uh, yeah, their their goals are very similar. They both are seeking some form of redemption. And at one moment, the, when one moment of the movie, 
Furiosa explicitly states that she's searching for redemption, which is where she's going back to the green place. So it, in some ways, yeah, they're both on this track of redemption, but for both for a little bit of different reasons. Furiosa is returning to her previous life where Max is trying to save somebody because he wasn't able to save people in his past. And that is one thing that I think they carry through nicely in this film is Max is clearly faced with this. He says, I am the one who runs from both the living and the dead. And he uses that word run because he is seemingly kind of trying to run from everybody, everything, his past, but it keeps haunting him. And then ultimately when these tangible figures are being chased and they're, it's pretty horrifying who they're, you know, kind of enslaved to. Then he does have the opportunity to kind of refer it back to those protector instincts, which he was when he was a cop or to just abandon them and treat them more animalistically, which kind of serves. Uh, I think it's really brilliant how Max's character, his arc comes about because he almost doesn't talk for, I don't know, the majority of the movie. And um, nobody even knows his name. At one point, Furiosa just refers to him as Fool, right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. She says, when I yell Fool, that's when you know to start it. And he kind of looks at her like, all right. Yeah. And, but then when it, so we, we kind of have the humanization of Max and of the other characters, especially the war boy that initially takes him. He has a really um, good redemption arc as well. But I really do love how we don't even know Max's name. He doesn't even say it till he's faced with Furiosa's death. And that kind of just emotionality right. and sensitivity hits us. That is so good. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I guess I probably should go as far as to say that every main character in the story, from Max to Furiosa, to Nux, to the four wives, I there are they have weirdly strange names. I don't remember at the moment. Uh, they're all seeking some form of redemption. Nux has been a part of the War Boys and kind of be after, especially after he begins a relationship with one of the girls on the uh, on the war rig. He also begins seeking his own kind of redemption. Then you have Max, which Max and Furiosa, they've already mentioned them. And then they have the four wives who have pretty much been sex slaves to a Morton Joe before this movie began. Um, so it's interesting to see how all these characters, they all kind of gain together in like this redemption train, more or less, to find something to make their lives, I guess, more, I guess, worth it in the end from the things that have happened, either happened to them in the past or that they did in the past. It's interesting because now it's not, this is nothing new to the Mad Max franchise. This is kind of what Mad Max has been built on for, especially in the last two movies, is some form of redemption. But this is probably the one that they really heavily emphasize that track of finding redemption with these main characters. And the main antagonist is interesting to bring up as well and how he plays off the other characters, Immortan Joe, who is not, he's the only one, as far as I know, the only one who has already been in a Mad Max movie because, like we said, Mel Gibson yeah. is gone. Tom Hardy is in. Uh, Hugh Keys Byrne, who played Toe Cutter in the very first Mad Max movie, he plays a Morton Joe. You wouldn't know it, though, considering he yeah. has giant white hair. He's all in white. He's got an ugly body with some pretty weird, um, it's like plastic army general stuff with like fake abs. And he wears this weird, like, um, giant teeth on his mask. 
super weird design, but it works so well (laughs) um, to create a memorable look for this villain. But he's kind of the godlike cult leader of this little area in the desert where he's figured out how to like mechanically harness water. And he pretty much holds that over the people's heads because you need water to survive and they live in a desert. And he's created war boys. They worship the V8 engine, which is pretty unique. And there's also a tad bit of Norse mythology mixed in there as well. When he, they talk about um, riding on the highways of Valhalla. So bringing right. all that together is sounds insane, but it works so well. <laughs> It's yeah, it's it's interesting to say the least, because one of the complaints I've heard about this movie is there is no story. Mm -hmm. And I would severely disagree with that. Mm -hmm. The story is there, but it's not the main, I guess, focus of it. And we'll get into that in a second. But yeah, it's interesting that uh, Morton Joe has kind of promoted himself to be, uh, as you mentioned, promoted himself to be like almost like you said, this Christ-like figure, where he even says, "I am your redeemer. It is by my hand that you will rise above the ashes of this world." And then later he has, says, "Do not, my friends, become addicted to water. It will take hold of you, and you will, you will resent its absence." It's interesting that he's pretty much keeping away uh, the thing that gives people life because that helps give him more control. And it's also cool to see like this visual of uh, this like. It's everything's mechanized in the background. Whenever you see the inside, mostly you mostly see it with the uh, the rising platform that Furio- that Furiosa comes off on with the war rig at the beginning. It's everything's mechanized. Everything has a everything is like controlled by something, and that also just helps with Immortan Joe and how much he how much control he really has over the Citadel here. It might be the only place for miles that people can go and actually kind of live. It's interesting that he has this much control, and then the moment he loses control, he it's 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 interesting that he knows what exactly he lost control of the minute he sees that he may have lost control when Furiosa deviates from the path. Yeah, and he's very much this like anti god figure where he wants yeah. this perfect messianic boy type child that will be his heir. Also, very much kind of like um, kings of old, they wanted an heir to continue on their line. And so he quote unquote marries these really weird. um, Well, no, they're not. They're not weird. He's weird. These like really beautiful women that he wants to impregnate all of them and get them to that. And there's, he has some fascination with mother's milk and uh, the whole world building is the one thing I like is like, nothing is ever explained to us actually. Um, yeah, we are yeah. dropped into this world and we're not spoon fed, but we're given just enough to realize there is a real world that's been built here. Like it's, it's actual like world building and it's not, I, nothing feels counterfeit to me, um, with yeah. that. So he's a really good antagonist to go up against, especially because he has this godlike status and he's able to control all of these people. And Max is kind of the reluctant, savior of the bunch right it's it's also kind of cool to see how i guess the main this main idea of slavery comes into all this it happens here right at the very beginning when before i i don't know if we we might but i don't know if we ever see the wives before uh immortan joe walks into i guess where they would be kept at which is behind a giant safe door uh and realizes that they're all gone for one, it's interesting that that was where he immediately goes to when he sees Furiosa deviate from the path, almost as if 
something like this has maybe happened before with these wives. Hard to say, but it is interesting that he goes straight for there. And then we get this idea of slavery and how they even mentioned earlier. Later on, they said, you can't, uh, you can't own us. Or he even says, that's when he's talking to Splendid, that's my boy, that's my property. It's interesting that he has, he's, he's this guy, now we have seen a power struggle before in Mad Max movies, most notably the last one. But this is one where the main antagonist has the power taken away from him and that he pursues himself uh, he pursues the thing that would grant him the power back and then ultimately that destroys him. Yeah, it's a unique chase where uh, he is he is the one chasing them, but then um, about halfway through the movie, or I guess two-thirds of the way, that chase is turned on its head and you realize the ultimate goal has kind of always been there all along. What they're they're not they're doing the wrong thing by running away what it's kind of like they're they're literally running away from their problems and max is like you're not going to find anything out there that's the wasteland and he's like well we know we have to fight for and uh kind of that rallying cries kind of the whole thing of the movie is will you stop this evil and that's the choice max is presented with and furiosa or will you just try and run from it and not make this world a better place and like you're talking about slavery it's interesting to note that these movies that these Mad Max movies that take place in the future always revert back to because there's always like there's always a dictator and they always revert to these really ancient world practices of mythology and uh, like you said slavery and reintroducing things to manipulate the people and it's just kind of interesting to see that history fold back on itself there. Yeah, Mad Max does like to prey on like history repeating itself uh, quite a bit. That's most most notably with what you were just saying, but also with like the vehicles that they use. They're repurposing these older vehicles to become, I guess, more souped up and go faster and consume more, or maybe not consume more gas, but they do run on this new gasoline like thing that's called guzzoline now. It's kind of cool that at the very beginning, uh, you get this hint that there were these guzzoline wars that happened in the past. And you hear this kind of voiceover of these war of this party asking, "What are you doing?" This other guy saying, "We want the gasoline, stupid." So you know that gasoline, at, at least at one time, was some kind of, I guess, war effort. People wanted to take over other people's gasoline. Now it's interesting that they become more like structured, where now the citadel is, I guess, maybe like the main area. Then you've got Gastown that clearly holds all the gas and bullet farm which holds all the ammunition uh they're more sectioned off almost as if they're like states but they have i guess they're more industrial it's kind of some really interesting way of world building uh and this crazy world that you would think is just complete chaos which to a certain extent it mostly is but it's also still very structured in the way that people are laid out in this wasteland yeah it's kind of reminiscent of very old world pre-world war one where lot large swaths of europe and even like germany predominantly were dominated by princes there were provinces and that is such a like a really old world mindset even going back thousands of years to like uh israel um under Roman rule, they all had to kind of work together, but there were governors and emperors. So kind of bringing back that old world mindset and introducing it in a pretty creative way and a weird way at that does make for something 
interesting, and I do hope that they will kind of continue with this possibly in sequels, and we could even have that as an opportunity to explore the world a bit more, because this is probably the first time in a Mad Max movie, aside from that weird planet Earth or whatever in Thunderdome, that oh, yeah. I was really kind of intrigued by one of the worlds because i will say in the road warrior that stuff wasn't that intriguing i mean lord humongous and the people with the gas or something i don't know this has probably been the most intriguing so far yeah it's also interesting too that it also somewhat breaks tradition because in previous mad max movies the main focus has been on not the big bad especially in the one especially in one and two the main focus is on more of the apprentice of the big bad and he, this one we kind of get that with nux but he's not exactly uh the apprentice if anything that would have been rictus he would have been because he's immortan joe's son it, you if there is if it was to follow tradition we'd be focusing more on rictus's endeavor in the story but this is not your older mac max movies it does have a heavy focus on immortan joe who is the big bad in this movie uh and only kind we only kind of get things here and there of rictus uh being his son and I guess being maybe second in the command, I'm guessing it's kind of they don't exactly explicitly state where he's at in the uh, I guess in the totem pole of I'm assuming this is a hierarchy kind of like how it was once again in the old world. But yeah, it's interesting that we're not necessarily at the same time where we're going back to older stuff and bring, and bringing back older things from the older movies. We're also kind of crafting a new path, which also kind of goes with the themes of the movie. You know, craft your own path and you know redeem yourself from what you need to do. It's interesting that they did that. Well, and what's also interesting is in olden times that we've been discussing, women would have not played any significant role lest right. they be a queen or something. But he does have a Morton Joe, um, which is such a funny name, Joe. Yeah. But Immortan clearly, you know, Sounds like immortal, so he's supposedly this godlike immortal Joe. But he does have imperiators, which clearly sounds like emperors. So he does have imperiators, but we don't see any of the other ones. So clearly Imperiator Furiosa is his, I'm guessing his favorite. She's kind of the lead. She is clearly the best, but she's also a woman. She doesn't really look like a woman, though, because she's bald. And she has more so androgynous features she's kind of more obscured in that way she does come across as very tough but we also do have splendid who i'm, I'm pretty sure in real life she's like a victorious secret supermodel or something i think you're right yeah so we do have kind of like both kinds of uh women here we have uh more so uh like i said these women that are both tough, but in their own way. And I, I'm kind of surprised here because women have never been much of anything except for, uh, what, what was her name? The singer in Beyond Thunderdome. You know who I'm talking oh, about. Yeah. Uh, crap. What is her name? I don't know. But you, you get what I'm saying. She was yeah. the leader. She, I guess she was tough, but she really wasn't that tough because she couldn't stand up to the midget guy. So, 
she right. had to have other people do that for her. So, and I, like I said, there was um, that woman that I really liked her character in The Road Warrior, but she was given so little like screen presence and much of a position in anything. She did fight in the end. So I'd say she's probably the closest to Furiosa, but I do yeah. love that Miller is um kind of putting women here at the forefront because for the most part women outnumber men considering max and the war boy and then you've got the four or five wives plus furiosa so it's them with a bunch of women and one so just happens to be pregnant and one is kind of this hardened war general almost but they realize that Immortan, what Immortan Joe is doing to them is completely wrong. And so they got to stick together and get out of there. And it's kind of a bit of a battle of the sexes also. They kind of have to learn to trust each other. So bringing this element in is uh, pretty unique, I think. But I do love that kind of Miller brings in that female empowerment. Yeah. Uh, just to go back to real quick to uh, Beyond Thunderdome. Tina Turner That's playing right. Auntie Entity. I, I kept wanting to say Tina Fey. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a different actress. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah, that's right. Tina yeah. Turner, who, yeah, yeah, it's kind of kind of odd. Right. But yeah, uh, one, going back to what you were saying, uh, yeah, it's interesting that, and it's also, this is also a product of the times, you know, now there's a lot of, a lot more of female empowerment in our society than there probably has, as far as I'm aware, there probably has ever been. Um and so it's interesting that you, you get to see this world, which what you were just saying before, pretty much for the most part in the last few movies, it's been mostly male dominant, aside from maybe Thunderdome, but even that is not as strong as it maybe could have been. Um, it's interesting, though, that they bring this all back to even, I think it's almost notable in this fight, the first fight that Max, or I guess when Max and uh, Furiosa first meet and they attack, and they attack each other, um, you can see that Max, both Max and uh, Furiosa can hold their own, most notably Furiosa. She's probably just as strong and strategic as Max is. And it's interesting that he now has a rival who is just as good as himself. And instead of fighting against her, they end up becoming like, uh, they end up becoming partners, more or less. And you get to see how in this first fight, and not only is it an interesting fight just to begin with, because he has this chain hooked to a face mask that the wives are pulling on to get him away from Furiosa and back and forth. But you also see how not only does uh, Furiosa have something to do, but the wives here, they each have their own personality. Now, they aren't exactly explored very deep because that's a lot of characters to get our hands into. But they, you can tell that there is definitely something to each each girl that's here that are, that are part of the breeders here. They each have some kind of personality trait or some kind of skill where you can easily distinguish one from the other and they don't really get... Uh, they don't really get mixed together, and they're very much not just damsels, damsels in distress. They're very much a part of this endeavor of finding this redemption that uh, that they're seeking, not just there for the ride that like you might see in more traditional movies. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that like Furiosa is necessarily as strong as Max, because I do think the thing the film does really well is showing both characters strengths and weakness and that they do need each other in order to survive it's not like they're right. these complete equals that are able to match each other and i do i do love that they both give importance credence to each of the sexes and um like for instance the women may have some better ingenuity at different things than the men like when furiosa meets that old clan that she used to meet up with and 
um, one of the wives pretends to go back to a Morton Joe in order to um, help sneak Furiosa back on board in order to defeat him. So it's those uh, kind of more so ingenuity things, whereas Max in one scene is one of the great scenes where he shows that he's the protector and he's fairly fearless is when he says, take the truck, you know, one click down the track. And if I don't come back, then keep going. And he just kind of runs off in the distance and blows everything up and comes back and uh, kind of him putting himself out there before the women. Whereas I'm sure Furiosa may have been able to do that. But nevertheless, Max says, no, you do it. Or no, you stay. I'll go and hook it. And kind of still introducing those kind of civilization um, mechanisms there. Those type of um, manners, I think, plays well in this world. And the one other thing that I am appreciative of this film is it doesn't rub it in our faces that these women are strong and powerful just to spite a male audience or right. just to send home this politically driven message. It's showing these women for their strengths and appreciating them for that. And, uh, you know, it shows every character's strengths and weakness, I'd say, but it's doing it in a realistic approach and not in some politically high-minded approach. Right, right. It's also interesting, too, that exact same scene, how pretty much every action scene that exists, we get to see everything that happens in it. But in this one scene, when Max walks off and is su- assuming going to sacrifice himself, or at least puts himself in danger to save the rest of the clan, uh, we don't get to see what happens. The only thing we really see is the explosion, and then Max coming back with all the ammunition and everything else that they need uh, to continue their journey. It's interesting that this is the one time, and com- when we're in a movie that's filled with action, the one scene, one action scene that we just do not see. And it's, we only kind of just get to, I guess, imagine what happened. The only thing we, only, I guess, real leading we get is he takes a tank of gasoline and we could do see an explosion. We can kind of piece together what happened, but at the same time, you don't see what happens. I think it's very interesting that it's more focused on Max being, I guess, the one who is doing the things for other people here. This is nothing new. Once again, this most this is pretty uh, average compared to every other Mad Max movie. But it is also also interesting that we just do not look at the, we do not get to see the scene in which Max uh, gives them the distance that they so gracefully need in this one situation. And for a good chunk of time, about 10, 15 minutes, they aren't really being pursued by anybody anymore. They're all everybody else who was pursuing them has at this point stopped, which we find out a little much later. Uh, and their only their now their only goal is just to find the green place. It's interesting that that as well, but at the same time, uh, you also get a uh, everything. Everything's pretty equal here. Uh, this is pro. I bring this up because in the scene with Splendid, you get this sense, and this is is foreshadowed earlier when Max shoots at her and shoots at her and uh, grazes her leg. It's kind of foreshadowing that she's going to die later, and when she does, you kind of get the sense that nobody in this world is safe. Not even a, not even a lady who's pregnant, which was. Could be rather controversial, just kind of considering uh, the things that you know, because she's you know pregnant. It kind of gives a sense that nobody here is uh, really safe, really in any sense of the word. And that's a, that scene, the night scene, is a really great contrast between Max and Morton Joe, because although I that is one of my favorite scenes actually. Because it is completely left up to the imagination and subverts our expectations and yeah. 
we're like, wow, you know, Max is so awesome, but we're, we're left to imagine what happened there. And we really don't see that very often in most movies that have to show you everything instead of leaving it up to you to like think, oh man, what just went on there? But Max is doing it in order for them to get away. He's not doing it to save his own skin. Whereas for instance, when Splendid falls out of the vehicle and a Morton in order to not run her over flips the truck he doesn't do it because he cares about Splendid. He does it because he doesn't want to crush his child and he wants to have a perfect right. child because when they do have to do some kind of C-section maybe to get the baby out of her, he doesn't really care what's going on with Splendid. He's like, get the baby out. That's all I care about. And it's not like he is a compassionate towards babies. He wants to have some heir that will continue his cultic legacy. Um also, that scene where Immortan Joe doesn't run over Splendid because she would have been completely crushed, obviously. Um, she is still quite hurt, of course, but the women all want to turn back. And that does kind of show the more emotional side of the females where no matter what, you know, even if she did get completely destroyed being run over, we need to we need to turn back for her, whereas Max is more practical. And even if it's not necessarily true, he says she went under the wheels, which means there's no hope. So I do think that is kind of a good balance there depicted between kind of a more emotional side of females and then more of a practical side of the males. And I mean, that there's vice versa as well. Like when Furiosa, it's more practical for her and her people to keep running the opposite way of Morton Joe. But Max, his emotions come into play and says, this, what kind of life is this? That's the life I've been living and it's, we're, we're done. We can't keep running from this. So then he meets up with them and says, what if we make a run back to the Citadel in one day? Which would seem to insinuate that's definitely more emotional, but they do plan it out. So balancing those character, like between like being like pragmatic and emotional, it's balanced very well between them. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool too that uh, Furiosa, at least from what I'm reading from her, uh, from her expression, when Max says, "I saw," and Max says, "I she went under the wheels." Furiosa asks him, "What did you see?" It and he, he turns to her and says, "She went under the wheels." A little bit more determined the second time around. You can kind of tell from Furiosa's uh, Furiosa's facial expression that she doesn't exactly buy it that what he's saying is true, but knows that he did this. He's saying this too for them to continue moving on because he knows that if they turn back to try and save Splendid, they could be in even worse trouble than what they're already in right now. Uh, and so I, I really like that. That just It's a small detail to a to a scene uh, that already has a pretty heavy emphasis, at least in terms of emotions. So, But also at the same time, uh, yeah, this I really do enjoy seeing this uh, Marsh scene, this nighttime scene, especially when we get to it's kind of in this peaceful moment. Finally, when they're driving along and you see like, these men on stilts and uh, you kind of get this idea of, well, what's their story? And we don't really ever explore it. We kind of get a small answer as to where the green place is, which is around this area. But we find out. Uh, in that same scene that it's kind of been poisoned and that though they couldn't grow anything it couldn't do anything they had to leave because they would have died if they stayed there it's it's really interesting that this is one of the few moments where i wish they would have stayed and like explored this area a bit more at least with the men on stilts because it looks really really cool and very very interesting but i wonder if they ever come back to that in a future movie it'd be nice to see but yeah it's you do get that 
visual or that visual of not only something dead because they can't touch the water, uh, but this was where the green place was at at the same time. They drove right through it. Yeah, that is one thing that I know we we brought up and other people have brought up is who are the man on stilts and what yeah. what are they doing? What's going on there? So maybe they will bring them up in another sequel. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. But yeah, the green place is an interesting contrast between that of the desert. And we did see a green place in Beyond Thunderdome, but the green place more so represents uh, kind of this perfect world, this perfect utopia. And Furiosa only remembers it in hindsight and they do drive through it but they don't even realize it. And right. um, we, we're, we're faced with the realization that there is no such thing as this perfect place here on earth because eventually everything dies and goes away and we have to adapt. We have to, we can't live in the past and we have to make do with the changes that come to us. And that's a really great moment when Furiosa like realizes the anguish because they've all been extremely hopeful that they're going to get to, um, in the words of the people from Thunderdome, um, tomorrow, tomorrow land. Yeah. They think they're going to get there, but they're like, there's no such place. That's just kind of only in the movies, you know, or right. it's only in stories. That's only in your folk tales. That's not real. And Furi- Furiosa pretty much gives up hope and continuing to run seems to be the practical thing, but it's fairly hopeless. Because, you know, uh, something that my dad has always told me is um, we don't want to run from something. We want to run to something. And ultimately, it becomes for the Furiosa crew, they're just running from something with no hope, no goal in mind until Max right. becomes that hope and that goal. And he's like, we can we can take the Citadel and bring back hope and liberate these people. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that r- around this time, right after the night scene... Uh, you hear, you know, the green place, it's gone, it, you passed it, it's pretty much eradicated, you know. Uh, we also get this subtle this subtle image that is also brought back later, and that's of the bag of goodies, I called it in my notes, that one of the, of the ladies has when they meet when they meet up with the Vuvulini clan here. Uh, it's kind of a symbol of hope. She kind of goes through and explore and talks about to one of the girls about what's in there and how she's tried to plant things and nothing really grows. And there's really only one or two things that in there that have actually sprouted something. But it's the, very much this bag of what I call my, the bag of goodies is very much a symbol of hope. And you do see it later on. They kind of they kind of uh, I, th- I think they pull it out at one point. And then when they do hop off of the ba- of of the uh, war rig. Uh, one of the girls, I think it's the girl who was even talking with this older lady, grabs a bag after she's pretty much passed away and brings it with her. It's after, especially, it's very, it's, it works especially after Furiosa finds out that the green place doesn't exist. You still have this hope that still exists somewhere in this world, even when the place that you're looking for is completely gone, which is in Furiosa's case, the green place. And then Max comes up and says, What if we just go back and take over the citadel? And we chop everybody off at the at the at the canyon like we did like we were thinking about doing before. We could have the entire citadel to ourselves. It's already pretty much a green place on the inside, already as it is. And so that's what gives Furiosa the hope uh, and the drive to even begin to think about going back to the citadel and going straight through the path that the those war parties have been chasing after him on. 
The other thing I believe the plant represents is the green place is wherever they are. Wherever somebody has hope or the belief in, in pursuit and freedom and the will to um, make that happen, then that is wherever the green place is. So she and that's literally manifested in a green place that they're like holding on to and carrying around with them. So right. I do love that idea of it's not just a physical location that is going to just magically grant you freedom and security. It's the people who have these belief and ideals and are and have the courage to put them into action that are going to ensure that freedom and hope will thrive and exist in that no matter how small the crew. And I do love the film depicts that in faced with incredible odds. And we re, literally have like a giant Goliath in many of those different forms, whether it be through vehicles or Morton Joe or Rictus against much smaller people, even women who old women who are not even as physically as strong. So bringing those right. elements in of kind of it's, it's not a place. It's an idea. It's, it's a, belief or it's more so just a universal truth that good will overcome evil i, I do love right. that yeah it's it's interesting that you we we've now talked for i guess i haven't exactly been timing it but we've been talking for um a good chunk of time about more of the th themes of mad max fury road and not the action of mad max fury road which i mentioned in the background info is what uh, Miller was going to was going for. He has thirty five hundred panels of storyboard and twenty seven hundred cuts. This is an action movie, but we're stuck here talking not so much about action, but about the themes that are inside this action movie. I find that to be very interesting. Just considering how much, just considering the action that is here is ex is excellent action that we are getting. And I believe that's a testament to Miller's storytelling capabilities that he's i would say he's vastly improved upon from his previously his previous three films that really didn't have much heart or much of a worldview to them they did have bits and pieces there but to me he really has seemed to solidified more of this uh he seemed to solidify more of these worldviews that we've been discussing and being able to blend those like pretty deep concepts with incredible action i think i love that i think that's a really incredible way of storytelling is getting the audience engaged and getting them to understand these basic concepts on a relatively you know basic level i think that's something that christopher nolan has done before like with the dark knight rises yeah that's a movie about batman fighting this crazy juiced up bodybuilder in gotham city but if you look at the more so um like economic and freedom of those things it's incredible because you've got bane which kind of represents this communal communism and bruce wayne who is this capitalist and you kind of have communism and capitalism going off against each other there and who's going to win well it's pretty cool they're able to kind of wrap those into a superhero movie or like with mad max into this crazy chase movie with blind rock stars leaping from cars and just just crazy stuff but i, I do love that this isn't just a mindless action movie there is a lot of meat to it
Yeah, it's it's that meat that really drives the action. It's not just here's. I guess now we probably should have an action scene and kind of write the script to give them an action scene. It this movie flows extremely well, where you have a lot of moments, a lot of long moments with a lot of tension in them. Also, at the same time, the complement of of moments that have no action and we've really slowed things down to give more relief. I think the biggest time when this happens is during this night scene when they finally lose the trail of the war parties that have been chasing them after uh, destroying the bullet farmer's leader. It's interesting that there are a lot of long action scenes. I timed it too. The first, for about the first 25, 30 minutes or so is the first action scene up until when Nux's car crashes. It's about 30 minutes of Almost, if it's not action, it's build up to the action. I think that's one thing it does very, very well, is it takes time to build up to these action sequences. A lot of time. Most notably with the one right before the marsh, right before the ending of the marshland. Uh, you get this pretty long build up to an action scene, uh, which is very, very interesting because... You know, this movie is mostly... And people see it as mostly action. I've heard it be described as uh, just a giant two-hour car chase. I don't necessarily agree with that. To a certain extent, I can see why they would say that. But it's all. But at the same time, if you're going to have a... If for me, for what I'm thinking here, if it's two hours long and the movie's a two-hour-long chase scene, then I would kind of assume that there would be really no breaks in between that action. But in reality, there's a lot of breaks that Mad Max Fury Road takes in this movie. A lot of them, and they're much needed, and they don't feel out of place, because there are some action movies that, I, th- I think probably a good example is Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Like, I want those action scenes to go on much longer than they actually do, and in a lot of cases, they're only a couple minutes long, when in reality, they could have gone on much, much longer, I feel. So it's interesting that he, there's a balance here between the action and chaos that ensues with a lot of these scenes, and at the same time, to complement those scenes that are much more quieter and, and uh, take time to build things and explore characters and whatnot. And they're long, drawn-out sequences, too. They're not, like, sporadic. They're, like, you can check out chunks of the movie and say this scene, this long chunk by about 10, 12 minutes is a scene that just goes on and explains things. And this is an action scene that's also 10, 12 minutes long. When I did first see the movie, the action scenes were almost a bit too overwhelming because of the intensity and impact it had on me. It really brings you in and requires a lot of you to hold, like to sustain this adrenaline for those those oh, entire yeah. sequences and then especially throughout the whole movie. And I do remember when I did finish it, I thought, whoa, I don't know, that one was pretty, pretty um pretty intense to get through and i'm like that one might be hard to rewatch because of how just kind of pedal to the metal you're strapped to the rocket and you got to hold on um but then like i said upon repeat viewings you come to examine more so the characters their themes and what this like what the worldview is um, trying to portray and then having those wrapped up in the action makes it m- a more enjoyable experience, I would say, on repeat viewings. Oh, yeah, yeah. On repeat viewings, you really do get to appreciate more of how Miller was able to even film this action oh, because yeah. I mentioned earlier in the background info, this is 90% practical. You can tell when there's CGI being used. I think one of the earliest, earlier moments in the movie is when uh, Immortan Joe pulls the levers and lets the water down. You can tell that water is CGI. It's not real. But those moments where CGI is used are, A, 
very sparingly and B are used appropriately that it doesn't it neither takes away it doesn't really take away anything from the movie. You you know what they're going for and I really enjoy the fact that it's not a CGI mess. Everything that you see is pretty much re- what's really happening on screen for the most part because like there's there are moments here and there where you can tell there's CGI. But I really enjoy if anything I really enjoy uh just the filmmaking prowess on display here it's it's truly incredible the visual effects he was able to achieve in film and how his wife was able to cut them all together no easy feat by any stretch of the imagination i think this would be an incredible struggle to use the editing to bring the intensity and then just even shoot some of like film some of this stuff i thought i don't even know how they could have filmed some of this and especially you know that's not always filmed in sequence and of course the whole scene is not filmed continuously they have to call stop and cut repeatedly and then it's up to the editor to make that all flow together so i think that's just a testament to how incredible of an editor his wife is and how oh yeah how amazing he is choreographing stunts and kind of executing that vision on screen and bringing um, that action that that seems incredibly dangerous and i don't even know how people didn't die <laughs> making some of this action <laughs> oh yeah yeah like the pole cats are one of my favorite one of my more favorite uh additions i guess to this mad max world where you have people on cars with these giant poles sticking out of it that are swaying back and forth like that's super it's super interesting and they utilize that and you mentioned earlier the guitar guy who, by the way, that guitar that he's holding weighs 200 pounds. What? You know, they, they utilize everything that they create here to some effect. And I think that's very, very interesting. But going back to the editing real quick, I think it should also be noted that there are a lot of jump cuts in this movie. Uh, one of the more, one of the things that comes to my mind immediately is the jump cut when Max is reloading the, I think it's a carbine and you see him kind of putting the, putting the magazine in and then pulling back the, pulling like the hammer and then handing it to Furiosa. There's like three jump cuts in that entire sequence as he loads it and then hands it back to Furiosa. There's a lot of those small jump cuts. And I know you, you kind of don't always see them, especially on subsequent viewings. You can begin to sell you can begin to tell where the jump cuts are because there are a few that are like i guess you could say hidden jump cuts in this movie but in reality it shouldn't work because jump cuts unless that's the style that they're going for uh they can often lead to it looking more amateur but with a movie like mad max fury road where the intensity needs to continue to be this exact same speed or go faster, faster, faster. The jump cuts here do a very, very good job at not only showing kind of like the gorilla aspect to this whole movie, but also keep the intensity rolling uh, without having to stop, without having to wait for Max to put the magazine into into, into the gun, load it back up, then hand it up to her. You see him kind of just a brief glimpse of him putting it in, then the ending it, the ending movement of him putting, uh, of him loading the gun and then handing it back to Furiosa. It's interesting that jump cuts are all over this movie and one of one of my favorite cuts there towards the end and one of my favorite scenes is when they do expose the dead body of a morton job everybody sees that he's he was a, he was a false god and um, they're free to not be under his tyrannical dominion anymore and they say bring right. them up bring them up which is kind of a cool 
sh- a show of ascendancy of them kind of rising above um kind of their slavery and into um just bringing them into freedom as well but you'll notice somebody is not on the platform with them and that's max because he is the drifter he is the road warrior who basically just goes from town to town and doesn't realize it but he's going to end up liberating everybody and saving them and he is always the reluctant hero and just that shot of him blending into the crowd and just nodding to furiosa yeah she understands that's that's like his position. And I can't help but feel this is kind of a bit of a Christ parallel here where Max is kind of the Christ figure where he's like, where I'm going, you can't go. Like your place is here. Your place is to kind of free these people and start restoring like order and peace that I helped you set up. And also more so the humility aspect of it where Max is not going to be one to claim the glory and credit and be the new Immortan Max. He's not one to do that. He is going to blend into the crowd and this silent hero will disappear and not take the glory. Um, So I do love the end. Yeah, it's interesting that Mad Max, especially in this retrospective, not so much the first one, but definitely 2, 3, and, uh, and Fury Road here, are very much Max being the one who makes the biggest sacrifice of all of them. And this one, it's kind of that way, although I would probably attribute that more to Nux. Nux is the one who is the one who pretty much saves everybody here at the very end by overturning uh, the big rig or the uh, the war rig, I guess is what they call it. So it's kind of, it's really, really cool to see um, how that mantle is kind of split between Max and Nux and how bet- if neither of them were there in the story, then these two then these few people would never have been able to achieve the redemption that they that they think that they are searching for one other thing too is you kind of mentioned uh the shot of max kind of blending into the crowd and i think we probably should take some time to talk about the cinematography here because uh this is probably some of the best cinematography i've seen at least in an action movie for a very long time and there are certain sequences that are kind of burned into my brain, most notably the sequence with those guys on stilts and the war rig in the background kind of driving by. There's all a silhouette aside from like the background in the sky, and it's, it's all either blue or black, and it looks so, so good. Uh, there are so many shots of this movie that look like fantastic. And for me, they're almost, they're pretty much wallpaper where they, you could just take a still image from the movie and like mount it on your wall, and it would be as if some guy took it on his own uh, some freelancer took it or some guy painted it almost yeah one of the other great shots is when furiosa falls on her knees and is crying like out loud in the desert that's a really emotional scene and that was one of the scenes that i did feel the black and white did a disservice to the scene because it just kind of more so muted the emotions yeah instead of really kind of the, the emotions were told not just through Furiosa, but through just like the harsh colors of the landscape as just kind of bringing out the reality and like the, just that kind of burning anguish she experienced. And we didn't really get that in the black and white version. So, um, the color, color, it's gorgeous. And yeah, with that final shot of Max going into the crowd, it cuts back and forth fairly quickly where it seems that time slows down and Furiosa, they're, they're all just kind of like savoring the moment in their own way where the victory has been really hard won and they're not cheering. Furiosa and Max aren't cheering. 
um, nobody really is much cheering on the flat platform. It's mostly just the people. It's yeah. just they kind of realized the price that they had to pay and the cost that it took them. And um, kind of going back and forth between the two and just the looks on their faces show everything. And yeah. that's that's fairly unusual because in movies when the good guys win, they're pretty much – they always like are yelling and they're excited. Whereas this, they're they're fairly – they're not really solemn, but there's just kind of this um, measure of understanding that right. they relate. And they relate it to us, which just kind of has a sublime victory to it. Right. Another CEO, I guess in the first – I can't remember how long, but it's quite a while of – for the first, I would say maybe about forty-five-ish minutes. Uh, they're you know constantly being chased by the three war parties behind them, and pretty much any shot, almost every shot. There's a lot of different shots uh, where this doesn't happen, but pretty much almost every shot where you see the horizon, uh, you can see those war parties behind them, kind of coming towards them. You can see the dust trails that they're leaving and the black cars that are there. I noticed this on my la- my most recent viewing where uh, there are so like quit. There are quick takes with Max talking or somebody talking, and you can see the cars behind him, and it kind of subtly, without really slamming it into your face too much, they subtly bring in this uh, this paranoia that they must keep going because they're right behind them. I think it's a really, really nice touch to a movie that already looks so good and has some fantastic cinematography to continue to use the cinematography to not only just say, hey, doesn't this look great, but also convey more story and more and more to the story than just having something well framed. I think that I think this one best cinematography. I was just looking at it here. Uh, it was nominated. Yeah. It didn't win. Yeah, that's right. It did not win. John Seal, the cinematographer, though, he did come out of retirement to help film this movie. And now I gotta know who won best cinematography for <laughs> this year. Cause I feel like I know what it would be, but I can't remember what it is. Yeah, John Seal is no stranger to cinematography. He is Australian, and he yeah. was he's been nominated uh, five times. He did win cinematography for The English Patient, which did win Best Picture, but he was nominated first for Witness, the Harrison Ford film, then Rain Man, Oscar winner for Best Picture, English Patient, Patient, and then Cold Mountain, and then finally Mad Max. So he he is a great cinematographer. Yeah. Okay. So. In terms of the winner of 2016 uh, Oscars, that goes to The Revenant uh, and Emmanuel Lubinsky. That's uh, a pretty yeah. hard, pretty hard choice, <laughs> I would say. But I yeah. personally, I would pick The Revenant. It was pretty incredible what they did with cinematography there. Yeah, I, I guess I'm kind of split. I would probably go Revenant because that one does it. It is. Uh, they do use a lot of wide angle lenses. And a lot of close shots with those wide angle lenses and a lot of handheld. They it's a bit more experimental esque than Mad Max is in terms of cinematography. But that does not they mean that Tom Hardy. That's true. They do. I guess. I guess you're right. That's not what. They, once again, that's not really to say one is better than the other. They're very different, and they're both very very good. Well, do you think we should wrap it up then? I think so. I don't have too much to say. I think okay. I put it actually. Yep. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Mad Max Fury Road? When I first saw this movie, I was kind of just getting into looking at films at a deeper level. Um, 
I was I now was this wasn't the movie that got me into all this. I was already kind of looking into movies be way before this, but this is like this is a movie that I remember being rather amateur in how I and how I uh, explore movies. And this is the one where I thought I, I I thought it was pretty good the first time I watched it, and then came back to it later and again and again and again, and was able to see more and more things and enjoy it more and more every time I came back to it. It's a gorgeous looking movie, a gorgeous sounding movie, a gorgeously acted movie. It's a fantastic movie all the way around. And I really do enjoy coming back to this movie that honestly, I don't think a lot of people, a lot of, I guess, typical moviegoers would enjoy too much because it does kind of go outside of the norm of what we see, not only in action movies, but just kind of movies in general, because let's face it, Mad Max Fury Road is a weird movie, mostly due to how it builds its world. But I think that's one of the theories, reason why I love it so much is that it builds its world in a more subtle way. And its story is told in a more subtle way, whereas the action is told outright to you. And that's this full that's what it was made for. Its purpose was to make it was to make really cool action scenes play out in a lot of really exhilarating ways. And I think that's very interesting that they were still able to tell a story that even though it is subtle and is kind of played out in the background. They still do a very good job at letting the audience kind of dig it, dig their teeth into a story or into a movie, into a world here, where you can still get some more out of it, even if you're only there for the action and you come back later to look at something else. It's not just like a one-sided coin or a two-sided coin. It's very interesting that uh, George Miller was able to was he was able to build a world without having to slam world building down your face. Uh, so. With that being said, Mad Max Free Road gets a 10 out of 10 out from me. I'm um, giving it a, a very solid, very strong recommend. Uh, I freaking love this movie. And I'm glad I ordered it on Blu-ray. Mad Max Fury Road is more than just a giant action thriller film where it's just a bunch of mindless explosions and you can turn your brain off, which I don't recommend you do. Because if you do turn your brain off, you will miss a lot of really great... Uh, messages, you'll miss a lot of great worldviews that this film wraps into these action scenes. And I think that's a great way of at first getting the audience's attention is through the action, but then realizing the meaning behind all of the action and the purposes for that. And I think this film does a great job of uh, predicting really flawed characters that all seem to be out for themselves initially in certain ways. Also, even Furiosa, who who is saving the uh, wives, but she also wants to get back to her own people, where she grew up, where she was initially kidnapped. Max wants to, I don't know, wants to live his life in peace, I guess. Doesn't want to be bothered by anybody. And uh, Nux also has a really powerful redemption where he initially wants to commit kamikaze just to go to some fake nirvana, but he realizes that's all just uh, delusional. So then he does end up sacrificing himself to save other people. So Mad Max Fury Road has a lot to it than just action. And when you take the time, like we did, to delve deep into this movie, it really, I, I'd say it, it enhances this film even more. I love it for its action. I love it for its pacing and, um, for not being pretentious whatsoever. And then just coming like a, a movie like this getting nominated at the Oscars for so many seems really incredible to me, but that does really make me happy because it's kind of this really nice blending of storytelling that I really enjoy. I've seen it 
four or five times now, and I definitely look definitely look forward to seeing Mad Max in the future. This is, in my opinion, the best Mad Max film we've ever gotten, and I really do hope they make a sequel to it. Hopefully, Miller and Warner Brothers can figure out what's going on there legally, and uh, they can bring the f- keep bring the franchise back, and it doesn't take another fifteen or twenty years. Mad Max Fury Road gets 8 stars out of 10 with a very strong recommend. Now I do want to bring out some one one small uh fun fact that I bring up I didn't bring up earlier because uh it's spoilers in the background info, but sound designer Mark Mangini kind of visualized the war rig in Immortan Joe's pursuit of a, as an allegory of Moby Dick, whereas the rig is the whale and Joe is Captain Ahab. So what he ended up doing, especially in the last like climactic scene, is when uh, the harpoons were being shot at towards the war rig and they were kind of spraying mother's milk from the back, uh, he used the sign of a whale using his blowhole when, the, when those harpoons pierced the rig. And then later mm-hmm. on, when that, uh, later on when that war rig topped uh, kind of when the war rig overturned, he used the sound of a of a slowed down bear growl as it flipped over. Oh, that's uh, cool. So you would never know it, but he utilized some animalistic sound. He utilized animal sounds for the war rig. I think it's very very interesting from a, a sound designer standpoint uh, point of view. Oh yeah, that, that definitely is a cool piece of trivia. I didn't know that. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our review of Mad Max Fury Road. We will go ahead and rank them real quick. I do want to do that. I didn't want to forget about that. So my ranking would be Mad Max Fury Road, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Mad Max, no, The Road Warrior, Mad Max 2. That's my, that's how I say it. And Mad Max. So literally reverse ascending or descending. Yeah. Okay. I got to think about this. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road is number one. The number two is The Road Warrior. I gotta think about this. Which one do I want to go in the number three spot? Because they're, I'm gonna, okay, I guess I'll go ahead and say I think Beyond Thunderdome is in the number three spot, and then uh, Mad Max 1 is in the number four spot, but they're pretty close. Uh, now, from three to, from two to three, it's a pretty big gap, but from three to four, they're pretty close. It's interesting how. Thunderdome and Road Warrior are perceived by fans. Alan yeah. and I represent both camps of how we yeah. how we like those films. <laughs> true. And to some people, the first one is the best one. And that is also true. People people are all over the place. You can talk to people, and they'll tell you Fury Road is their least favorite of all of them, probably. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. funny. Well, listeners, you're going to want to subscribe because next week we will be coming back to you with M Night Shyamalan's very famous film, very creepy Hitchcockian film, Signs, which Alan has apparently never seen before. I haven't. I'm pretty excited for it. Because I hear, I've heard a lot about it, but I have not officially gone through it. I've seen the opening, fo- opening, like, opening credits. I want to say. Mm. Well, that's the great opening credits. Yeah. <laughs> so. I don't know how far I've seen. Maybe I'll be able to remember when I watch it again. But I know I've seen a little bit of it. Not very much, but a little bit of it. I think I also know the twist. Okay. So that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we will see. I'll be excited to see Alan's fresh new perspective. I've seen Signs a number of times, and I do own it on Blu-ray. And although Mel Gibson has, for now, it seems like, left the Mad Max franchise, he's coming back in M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. So we will be seeing Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix, two pretty big uh, icons of Hollywood, in this film, and then we'll be following it up with The Village, that's another M. Night Shyamalan film, and then we'll be kicking off a brand new retrospective series, Men in Black, just in time for Men in Black International this summer. I just watched all three films very recently for the first time with my girlfriend. Have you seen any of the Men in Black films, Alan? I've seen a good chunk of one. That's it. I've always oh. the only thing I, the only one I've actually ever seen is the first one I think, and it's only been as it wasn't even the whole thing. It was just a good maybe thirty forty five minutes of it. Okay, well you'll be. I I was new, but I'm you're newer now. Yeah. So we're both quasi new to the series. I know probably a lot of you listeners aren't new to Men in Black because we're apparently very late to the game. <laughs> That's Those are movies a lot of people have seen, but we'll be giving you our fresh hot takes on all of those leading up to the brand new film, which judging by the trailers looks pretty good to me, but we'll see. I'm interested to know what you listeners think as well. So if you don't want to miss anything, which you absolutely don't, go ahead and follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, Listen to us on iTunes or Podbean or whatever podcast aggregator you use. Also, if you want mail, I love getting mail in my inbox, not from uh, stores. That always bothers me. I like mail I care about. And this is mail you definitely will care about. Go to our website and you can uh, click subscribe there and then you're able to type in your email and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday at 1230. So while you're eating lunch, when the workday is almost over, you can enjoy catching up with us here on the Silver Screen Guide. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Sure thing. All right, listeners, well, we will catch you next week. And in the meantime, if you do want more content, if this isn't enough for you, go ahead on over to our Patreon page. And just for the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, you get movie reviews, commentaries, news and trailers on our thoughts on all of those things, Q&As, you get the whole deal that is yours to keep. And whatever amount of money you can give to us, we really appreciate it. It helps us keep the lights on. It helps us keep these episodes free. We don't live in fairy tale land. It does cost to support the bandwidth and storage for this uh, podcast. But if you do enjoy it and you want to show us your support and uh, continue to help us out and continue to let these episodes be made, then uh, please head on over there and support us. But we will catch you next week with Signs.